the elementary kids to their classrooms. Well, this past week was anything but ordinary for those of us living in northwest Missouri. Typically, when I know that I'm scheduled to preach on a um, a given Sunday, I like to start working on my sermon uh, that Tuesday just to give myself plenty of time to kind of think through it, prepare it, come back to it later in the week, edit it, make changes or whatnot. But this week was a little different. I needed some inspiration for my message, so I hopped in a car with some friends down to Kansas City and hung out with a bunch of people wearing um, blue t-shirts because I wanted to clearly hear what God had for me. So I took a video that I want to show you guys of what the Lord audibly spoke to me this past Tuesday. Here's what he said. I think it'd be a sin to not give a shout-out, right, to the Kansas City Royals, that's right, yes. I know, I know Jesus is top dog, but Royals are just a little bit below him, right? You know, I was thinking, I'm actually probably a little, little bit more of a football fan, you, you would never tell by looking at me, than baseball, but I was thinking, I'm like, man, I mean, I was just on cloud nine being there, I was like, what would I do if the Kansas City Chiefs won a Super Bowl in my lifetime? Not only would I go nuts, I would go to the rally, I'd probably be that guy that camped out beforehand to get a front row seat, but I think honestly at that point, I talked to my wife, like that would probably be like the pinnacle of life for me. I mean, literally, Jesus could part the heavens and just take me away at that point, because I don't know if life would get much sweeter after that. So anyway, congrats to the Royals, had to give them a shout out. This morning, we're going to continue our discussion on the way of Jesus, and is it just me, or is this sermon series kind of kicking anyone's butt. Anybody? Four of us? Cool. <laughs> this sermon series is like, Phil, thank you, killing me. You know, I've kind of been taught, probably like a lot of you, my whole life to go to school, work hard, and make lots of money, and be successful. But then when I read about Jesus, he tells me to give everything away, uh, you know, to the poor. I've been taught to kind of run, run away from pain and suffering and stay away from it, pursue comfort and security But then as we learned last week, Jesus tells us to get in the boat with people and suffer with them. I've been taught to stay away from people that hurt me and cause pain to me or or my family and friends. But then Jesus says, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek and pray for your enemies and bless those who hurt you. It's completely countercultural to Jesus' way. Sometimes it doesn't even logically make sense just how much our culture is just rooted in the way that we want to treat people and respond to life. And so we're going to continue our discussion today on the Jesus way, and we're going to specifically look at the prayer life of Jesus. Not just that he prayed, but how he prayed and the way he went about it. So let's go ahead and dive into scripture this morning. If you want to get your Bibles out, open up to Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, starting in verse 30, 30 through 46. It should be page 703 in your pew Bible. We're going to read, this is the account again of Jesus feeding the 5,000, but what I want you to pay attention to is what, what happens before the miracle and what happens 
after the miracle. Mark 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people set down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So verse 31, if you look at that again, it tells us that in the midst of the chaos and the crowds, Jesus tells his disciples, he said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. And they went to a solitary place. And then in verse 46, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus left everyone to go by himself up on a mountain to pray. And I think we can pretty easily conclude, conclude no one was as in demand or as busy as Jesus, right? Everybody wanted to be around this guy. They heard every, the crazy stuff he was kind of saying and all the proclamations he was making. They wanted to hear it for themselves. People wanted to physically be around him so that they could maybe heal them or bring their sick friends and watch Jesus heal them. He was as in demand and as busy as anybody ever could be. And this is one of those stories where he seemed to be okay. Jesus seemed to be okay with the fact of him just walking away, even though there were people there that still probably needed to hear the good news and still needed to be healed. Because he knew what he needed, and he knew what his disciples needed, and they needed solitude. They needed to rest in the presence of their Lord and to be strengthened in the only way that he could be, only way he could strengthen them to give their bodies, minds, and hearts the endurance to continue. And I would guess that about every single one of us here today can relate a little bit to kind of the crowds, the busyness, and the chaos of life. Anyone relate to that? I'm going to give you guys some examples, so bear with me for a minute. I'm going to give you some examples of the chaos that comes with many of us living in America. The average working American works 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. 
But many feel that isn't enough to pay off debt or purchase the things that we want. So many of us go into work earlier, stay later, and pick up weekend shifts. It's not uncommon to talk with individuals who work 60, 70, 80, even 90 plus hours a week. We've accepted this as normal. We say it's just the way things have to be in order to be successful and live the life that we want. The pressure for our children to succeed doesn't help matters. We pour what time and energy we have left over to enroll and support them in numerous sporting, academic, artistic, and extracurricular activities, often filling up our weekends and our weeknights. And the time away from home affects our food choices, so fast food is often an easy remedy to our hunger. The organization Crossway gave an eye-opening account of the American busyness epidemic. Researcher Ellen Galinsky interviewed more than 1,000 kids, grades 3 through 12, and asked them this question. If you were granted one wish to change the way that your parents' work affects your life, what would that wish be? Their answers were striking. Instead of wishing for more face time with their parents, they wished that their parents would simply be less stressed out. More than 40 million Americans sleep less than six hours a night. The average American is now sleeping two and a half hours less per night than we were 100 years ago. I have a friend that I've known for a good chunk of my life, and every time we talk on the phone to catch up, every time we meet face-to-face, which isn't very often, I always ask him, hey man, how you doing? His response is always the same. He looks at me and says, man, I'm just so busy. I'm just so busy. And what's really interesting is when he tells me how busy he is, literally his face lights up and his eyes seem to widen. It's as if he wants me to kind of like pat him on the back or tell him how proud I am of his busyness. And somehow we've equated busyness with success and significance. If we're busy, we're in demand. We must be wanted. If we're not busy, we, you know, we think we're unimportant, insignificant. Kevin DeYoung, author of the book Crazy Busy, wrote this. The most significant danger of busyness is its effect on our emotional and spiritual health. Busyness robs us of our joy. When we're busy is usually when we are least Christ-like to our loved ones. God wired us for a rhythm, for rest, routine, work, and retreat. And when we violate that rhythm, it robs us joy and robs others of joy. Busyness has probably killed more Christians than bullets. Busyness chokes out the word of God. Busyness masks the fact that we even have a soul. Some of us live at such a hectic pace with so little self-reflection that we forget that we're even spiritual creatures. Now, I'm sure none of us here can relate to that, right? I mean, us wellspringers, we're on a little bit different level of holy living, right? Right? I'm not so sure that we are. And I think it would be easy to make the argument that we actually live in a busier and more frantic society than Jesus lived in 2,000 years ago in ancient Israel. Take automobiles, for example. Those were not invented or accessible back then, but we have them at our disposal, making it possible for us to attend 35 different events and meetings every day, right? Take cell phones. Those were not accessible back then. We have that option, busting out our cell phones and our television, checking every social media, 
email and just zoning out. The Israelites were hard workers for sure, but they were all very poor. They didn't buy into the American dream of working insane amounts of hours to purchase things in life that are luxuries, not necessities. So in a relatively less busy society, Jesus made a high priority of prayer and solitude. Prayer was vital to the way of Jesus. It was literally at the center and the heart of the Jesus way. I want us to look at some examples of how Jesus prayed. So look at the slides here. These are times when he prays for um, some specific things. This is Luke 6. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Matthew 26 says, Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So in the first example, a specific prayer he prayed, he wanted God's, he wanted the Father's help in choosing which disciples he wanted to call to follow him. He prayed all night. Some, some of you Young Life kids might say he pulled an all-nighter. Jesus pulled an all-nighter praying. Yeah, I got some smiles there. Praying. This next one here, this is him in the garden. You know, he's praying. He said, if they're if, asking his father if there might be another way for God's wrath to be put on him and for him to bear the sins of all humanity. Because he was human, and he knew the horror that was to come and the execution that he was about to face. We know that sometimes Jesus prayed alone. If you look in Mark 6, um, he also prayed for people. We know he prayed for children. He prayed for sick people to be healed. He prayed for the blind to see. He prayed for dead people to literally be raised to life. We know he prayed for people. I believe it's Luke. I'm sorry, he prayed with people. Luke 9 tells us specifically that he took Peter, James, and John with him up on a mountain together to pray. We know sometimes Jesus prayed as a sprinter. Right. Take the Lord's Prayer, for example. The Lord's Prayer is short enough to be um, easily memorized and quickly declared. But we know sometimes Jesus prayed as a marathon runner, too, setting aside chunks of time to be still before his Father. Luke, Luke 6 excuse me, tells, tells us he spent the entire night praying. He prayed as a marathon runner, too. And we know that Jesus prayed regularly. Luke 5 tells us he often withdrew to lonely places. And he didn't just pray when things were going bad. That's kind of our natural default. He prayed when things were actually going well. In the story we just read, right after he fed 5,000 people, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Jesus prayed because he understood he understood his limitations as a human He understood his need for intimacy with his father. And he knew he needed to hear his father's voice. And if the person that knew God the Father more than anyone that has ever walked the face of the earth was aware of his need to spend time with his father, who are we to think that we can bypass intimacy with God? Who are we to think that we can get on with life and truly honor Christ and be one with his heart? without spending time with him in prayer. Pastor Tim Keller summed up Jesus' prayer life by this. Sorry, it's kind of long. He said, Jesus Christ taught his disciples to pray, healed people with prayers, 
denounced the corruption of the temple worship, which he said should be a house of prayer, and insisted that some demons could be cast out only through prayer. He prayed often and regularly with fervent cries and tears, and sometimes all night. The Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him as he was praying, and he was transfigured with the divine glory as he prayed. When he faced his greatest crisis, he did so with prayer. We hear him praying for his disciples and the church on the night before he died, and then petitioning God in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Finally, he died praying. So how does our prayer life look in relation to Jesus' prayer life? Is it just kind of one way, one dimensional, maybe two minutes before bed every other night? Do we just pray, do we just pray as sprinters, or do we pray as marathon runners too? I know for me personally, I, my prayer life falls more in line with that of a sprinter, right? I'm kind of ready to get it done, knock it out, move on with my day. Just kind of throwing up just real quick prayers for people in my life. Usually when someone calls me or texts me and asks me to pray for them, to be honest, I, I usually just try to like to do it right then so I can just kind of get it off my to-do list for the day, pat myself on the back, and feel like I'm doing good as a Christian. Um, I often use that excuse of busyness, right? I got people to meet with in the mornings. I got sermons to write, Bible studies to prepare for. That's an excuse I often use. An excuse I hear, too, from, from a lot of people, actually, is that they don't know how to pray. We use that excuse a lot. We're not really sure what to say or how to pray. You know, and I mean, the disciples asked Jesus that same question. He said, teach us how to pray. And so he gave them the Lord's Prayer. And I kind of got to thinking, you know, if we were to go to a different country, let's say you were going to move to Europe for a year or two years. If you were going to move to France, you would do everything possible in advance to get a head start learning that language. At least I would hope so. You would buy Rosetta Stone. You'd contact a local school or college and try to find a tutor. You would find someone fluent in French and spend time with them and try to learn from them and kind of, you know, immerse yourself in the French language as, you know, as much as possible. And we have all that we need through God's word and through our brothers and sisters here to be fluent in the language of prayer. And I think that our prayer life often looks different than Jesus' prayer life. We're kind of getting to the meat of the message here. I think our prayer life often looks different than Jesus' prayer life because we don't truly understand why we should pray. I think we know we should pray. A lot of us growing up in church, we've been taught that. You pray, it's just the right thing to do, right? It's the way of Jesus. But why? Why is it the way of Jesus? If you don't listen to anything else I say, listen to these next two sentences. Prayer was vital to Jesus because the Jesus way is a way of dependence and submission. The Jesus way is a way of dependence and submission to the Father. It's acknowledging that He is God and we are not. It's acknowledging He is infinite, all-powerful, right? All-knowing and all-loving and we are limited, sinful human beings. And it's acknowledging that He's the Savior. We are not. We're just His chosen instruments. In her book, Sacred Rhythms, author Ruth Barton wrote this. Prayer means letting God's creative love touch the most hidden places of our being. And prayer means listening with attentive, 
undivided hearts to the inner movement of the Spirit of Jesus, even when that Spirit leads us to places we would rather not go. True prayer flows from a spirit of dependence and submission to God and His sovereignty. So I kind of want to throw out a question to you guys, and I, I would love to get your feedback. So here's my question. What are we saying by not praying? What are we communicating to God when we choose to forsake prayer and allow other priorities to kind of take over our lives? What are we actually communicating to God when we choose not to pray? The floor is open. Some of you are smiling, so let's get some feedback. Yes. Yeah, we're communicating that we can do it ourselves. We don't really need his help. Excellent. Anything else come to mind? Yes, John. Yeah, yeah, that God's not the most important. Yeah, the other things trump him. Good. Anyone else? Mr. Jewell. Yeah, that we're not interested really in being obedient to following him. Yeah, that's good. Anyone else? Phil. Yeah, okay. Sometimes we're too insecure to listen to his advice or his counsel to us. Good. Gary. It's too much time. Mm. We're interested in, like you said, saying a prayer to get it over to a doctor right away. So, so time is important and we don't have time to do something else. The time is what prayer is. Yeah. Yeah, some, prayer takes time, and we have that excuse that we're too busy, right, to pray, to listen to God's voice. Mr. Willoughby. Mm, sometimes, yeah, we have a, a belief that he's not going to answer our prayers sometimes. Yeah, sure. Anyone else? Someone's in the back there, I think, yes? Yeah, we make excuses and just kind of just have pride and arrogance that, eh, yeah, we got this. Maybe we don't need him. Good. Good. Very good. We don't pray. When we don't pray, we're communicating to God that we don't really need him. Pretty much kind of what a lot of you guys said. We're saying, hey, we got this, right? Our skill and wisdom, we got this under control. Every summer, I lead like a two-month internship here at Wellspring for young adults to grow in their faith and develop leadership skills. And I usually start promoting this internship in January or February, kind of the beginning of each year. And this, this, this year, I thought I was going to do some great things on my own. Um, January, February rolled around, and I started pursuing people hardcore, you know, high school seniors, college-age kids that I thought could really benefit from going through this internship. I had so many face-to-face conversations Tons of phone calls, emails, you know, Facebook messages I sent out, text messages. I even recruited like 15 other people to kind of help promote it and get the word out. And after about literally four months of hardcore promotion, I had nothing to show for it. It was May, we were a month out, and I had zero interns. And I had been running around like crazy promoting this thing. I had zero interns. I literally had people coming up to me, this is kind of messed up, coming up to me saying, Hey, man, I hear you don't have a lot of interns signed up. I'm like, cool, man, thanks, dude. That makes me feel real good about myself, (laughs) right? Wah, wah. Zero interns signed up, and we were about three to four weeks out. 
I wanted to throw in the towel. I remember I talked with Bob a couple times. I was like, can we just like cancel this summer? This is just a fail already. Can we just be done? I want to focus on other things. And looking back on it, I now see that God, it didn't feel like it at the time, but God in his mercy allowed me to reach a point to where I had nothing left, nothing else to give on my own. And I think he was probably looking down at me at that time just saying, are you done yet? Like, are you done acting like a crazy man trying to promote this thing and be a mover and shaker and get this thing rolling? How about you just trust me for one week? Just trust me and see maybe that I could do something greater than you could do on your own. And I hadn't spent, honestly, hardly, this is messed up, I'm a pastor, this is messed up. I hadn't spent hardly, like, any time in prayer asking God to send possible interns to me. I mean, I put it all on myself. I'm going to be the go-getter and the mover and the shaker. I was acting like I was the Savior. And I made the decision that I was done. I had zero interns. We were one month out from starting, and I said, I'm not going to talk to another person. I said, Jesus, you're going to have to take them all, right? Jesus, take the wheel, right? I can't do it on my own. I'm letting go. I followed Carrie Underwood's advice. I let go. And within three, week, within three weeks, God sent three interns to me that filled out an application. It was unreal. And the purpose of that story is not to show that if you, you, know, if you say your prayers, God's going to give you your car or your house that you want or anything like that. But for me, it was God saying, hey, why don't you trust me first? I can probably do things a little better than you can. I have something probably bigger in store than what you could even dream of. I was acting like the Savior, operating out of my own strength. Um, back in this past April, we had a guest speaker named Steve Sewell share something here on Sunday that just stopped me in my tracks and kind of cut me deep. He said, when you are prayerless, you allow experience and skill to take over. And then he just said, and you don't want that to happen. When you are prayerless, you allow experience and skill to take over. And you don't want that to happen. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells us this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Just because you've received the good news, it doesn't mean that you're intimate with God. Just because you've been going to church for 10, 15 years, it doesn't mean that you're intimate with God. Just because you go to youth group or young life or give money every now and then to a church, it doesn't mean that you're intimate with God. What he desires more than anything is a deep relationship with you. And that's hard to happen, hard to take place when there's not two-way communication taking place between his spirit and your spirit. Tim Keller wrote, The infallible test of spiritual integrity, Jesus says, is your private prayer life. The infallible test of spiritual integrity, Jesus says, is your private prayer life. Our prayer life is shaped by our dependence and submission to Him. If we're dependent upon Him, prayer will be the natural response and overflow of our heart. If we're not dependent upon Him, we'll try to manage and control life. 
on our own strength and efforts. It's that simple. If Jesus, here's a question I kind of want to throw out to consider. If Jesus were to spend a week walking alongside you, if he were to spend maybe last week or this upcoming week, if he were to spend a week walking alongside you, what might he say about your life? How might his protective, restorative heart pull you aside and say, come with me, let's get some rest. When you think about the hours, the crazy hours we work, we have family commitments and friends and you know, jobs to manage, and then on top of that, we have so many distractions, right? I mean, how guilty are we? I know I am. The time we spend reading and watching sports, right? Checking our emails, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, listening to morning radio, watching our favorite television shows. The list can go on and on and on. There's constant noise and distraction around us. And in the midst of it, Jesus is whispering in our ear, come with me to a quiet place and get some rest. And as we conclude today, I'm not going to challenge you guys to pray more. That's not the purpose of this message at all. I'm not going to give you 12 steps to pump up your prayer life or turn it up to 11. That's not the purpose of this prayer either, of this message either. I want you to consider if there are areas in your life that aren't completely dependent upon God. Maybe you're here today and every area of your life is dependent on God and your prayer life is amazing. You're knocking out of the park. If that's you, please take a lot of us under your wings so we can learn from you. Like literally come see me after church today and take me under your wings so I can learn from you. I know personally an area of my life that is not dependent on God, it's a constant struggle, is my work in ministry. Always trying to be the mover and shaker doing everything on my own strength. For some of us here today, maybe it's, maybe it's our finances, you know? We're not fully dependent on God, and so we work insane amounts of hours because we really believe that we're the Savior and we're the sustainer and provider of life. God has so much more for us than our constant struggle of trying to manage and control life. He loves us and loves you more than you can even fathom. And right now, in the midst of the chaos and the noise and the distractions, he's whispering in your ear, come with me to a quiet place to rest. In me, you'll find rest for your soul. In me is life and life to the full. Will you respond to his invitation? Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word, God. God, I pray that whatever you're speaking to each of us right now, God, help us to listen clearly as those voices and thoughts are distracting us of the things we've got to do this afternoon. God, help us to put them aside and focus on what you want to communicate with us right now. God, I pray that we can hear you. Jesus, help us to be people who are completely dependent, God, upon you in every area of our life, God. For those of us that aren't, God, I know, uh, I know my area of weakness. God, teach me to grow in knowing that you are the Savior. I'm, I'm not the Savior. 
God, whatever it is you're trying to speak to us right now, let us clearly hear your voice, God. And I pray that we won't just hear it, but that we'll respond in obedience, God, because you are whispering in our ear, God, to come be with you and to rest, to find strength for our souls, God. So help us respond in whatever that might look like for us personally. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys pray with us? Uh, Stand with us as we sing one last song.